This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... This year's Chicago International Film Festival. Skullduggery versus Drama System. A map of gangland Chicago. And the burning of the library at Alexandria. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. Once again, we grab some popcorn and head down the sticky floors of the Cinema Hut. In this case, we're going to talk to Ken about his recent sojourn at the Chicago Film Festival. And Ken, the Chicago Film Festival is a, as I understand it, pretty decent regional festival, which means it is smaller and more contained and perhaps more manageable than the Toronto Film Festival. So perhaps you could just sort of paint a picture of uh, how it's set up and how you go about tackling your choices each year. In previous uh, years, uh, it used to be at numerous theaters all over the city. It would go uh, to various art houses, and I started watching it because it played at the really quite good theater here on campus at the University of Chicago, Doc Films, and they played a bunch of Hong Kong films back in the late 80s, early 90s as part of the festival, and so I would go see those all the time because Hong Kong films, I mean, awesome, right? And that sort of lured me into the larger uh, panoply of international films available at the festival. And over the 90s, I started seeing more and more of them. And by now, uh, it's sort of a thing. My uh, buddy Jim takes off a week from work, and we uh, try and see as many films uh, that look half-decent as we can. And traditionally, the film catalog comes out right at the end of TIFF, right at the end of Toronto. So I go to your... Uh, blog and read which movies at Toronto were awesome and see if by some uh, freak of good luck we got those movies at Chicago and sometimes we do this time we got two of the movies that you saw uh, in, in Toronto in Chicago and if you recommend them then I put them on my list and we go and see those and anything else that looks good and like like I need to tell you the way that you select film festival uh, movies is some of it is just sort of a genre, director, whatever normal way that you would select a film. And some of, some of it is because you're deliberately trying for sort of an adventurous, you know, thing I wouldn't see anyway type uh, attitude. You might take a, a, a shot at something uh, that sometimes doesn't pay off and sometimes pays off really well. But it's all a matter of decoding the film festival blurb. And so when they say something is um, uh, a uh, haunting look at... Uh, whatever, you know, Bosnia or something, you just know that it's going to be filmed in pretty much one long, slow take and no one will say <laughs> anything. Or the word languid is always a good stay away. Yes. Or uh, uh, rewards a patient viewing. Meditation is another one that is yeah, basically... Meditation is a... Don't uh, even try it. A red letter. Anything about shamans, no matter how much one is interested in shamans, do not go to see a film about shamans at a film festival. Because it will not be that part. It will be very slow, and it will probably be a lot of uh, boring rituals in real time. And, and drifty dissolves. Uh, so do you have uh, signed programmer notes where you can decode the tastes of the various programmers as no, you no, get to know them over the years? It, it's all um, uh, sort of put up as a, as a collective. The guy who founded it, uh, Lothies, many years ago, this was the 48th uh, film festival, and the, the founder, Michael Kutza, is still sort of involved. There was a palace coup against him a few years back, and he had to take on a, a committee of help uh, that I think sort of watered down his idiosyncratic taste, which on the one hand is good because some of his taste was idiosyncratic, but bad in the sense that now it's it plays it, uh, I think, a little safer than it did uh, back when he was running it all by himself, uh, like a crazy person. So did this continuity of programming, going back all the way to the original founder, does that account for the Chicago Festival sort of bias towards Europe and uh, unhipness towards Asia and South Korea? I think that's a big part of it. I think the fact that he was, you know, 
he, he began paying attention to film, I suspect, you know, right when the Nouvelle Vague is uh, blowing up and was the big thing. Also, uh, the uh, there are a number of consulates in Chicago and cultural institutes that provide, uh, you know, funding and sponsorship. So if you're getting money from the Germans and the French and the uh, Swiss and whoever else, you're going to wind up watching more European films. I think the South Korean and Japanese consulates in Chicago have been kind of asleep at the switch uh, in terms of trying to at least uh, get that kind of positioning in the film fest. And You do not have a Japan foundation in Chicago? We may have one, but if we do, they are not uh, doing their job of it getting... It is an inferior Japan foundation, yes, if so. Yes, it is. Uh, we, I know we have one because they brought the, um, uh, the, the Nikasu films, uh, the action films by Nikasu, they're sort of these sort of very grimy B-movies uh, that there was only like one copy of left in the world, and they brought them to the Siskel Center, which is uh, another great uh, art house in Chicago. So I know that the Japan Center does exist because they uh, they wrote the subtitles that we saw for those films. There's now an Eclipse Box, uh, which is the uh, criterion arm that does box sets of five Nakatsu Noir films, which I would highly recommend to anybody who likes really tightly constructed mean, uh, black-and-white, cool 60s crime movies. Yeah, it's set in Japan. Uh, they're they're really good. I, like I say, they, they ran, I think, probably all the ones in that box set in this fest, in this mini-fest at uh, the Siskel Center. And I saw, I think, four of the five, three of the five, something like that. So now that we've mentioned films that people can't get a hold of, let's move on to the things that are not yet coming to a theater their uh, way, but will be coming in the next uh, months to possibly about a year. And... Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, the designer of Knight's Black Agents picked an espionage film as his favorite. Yes. Uh, the Hungarian film The Exam. It's a first film by the director Peter Burgundy. It's, it, 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 if, you, if you liked um, sort of the aesthetic and the cinematography, not so much the editing choices of Alfredson's Tinker Tailor, but the, the sort of the filmic look of it. This is set in the 50s, not in the 70s, so there's some differences, but it's that same sort of understanding of the hermetic espionage world. Uh, It's a terrific movie. Uh, There's a sort of a a secret policeman who is, who interviews uh, dissidents who are on, who are informers. And uh, it is his exam day to have himself monitored by another secret policeman to determine whether or not he's a loyal uh, son of communism. It takes place right after the Hungarian revolution failed in 1956 and is it's just terrific. I mean, there's, uh, it, it, it's a, it's a great spy movie. It, it you know, it, since it's made by Hungarians, it doesn't sort of play around with, uh, communism. There's none of that, uh, sort of camp or chic to it. It's, it's just really strong on, uh, all kinds of, uh, on all kinds of good levels. Plus it's just a racketing good spy film. It's been really interesting over the last few years to see the growth of commercial and genre fiction from Eastern Europe, because, when I first started going to film festivals, and I'm sure what you did as well, an Eastern European film meant something that was uh, slow, uh, meditative, uh, melancholy, mm-hmm. uh, often shot in uh, various shades of gray. And uh, then you sort of started getting Eastern European comedies, which meant that the sense of fatalistic despair was shot through with undetectable notes of irony. And now, finally, in the last few years, we've started to see uh, commercial cinema emerge, first of all, for the home markets in those countries and also uh, for export. And so we're seeing uh, some national cinemas are still uh, very realist and doing interesting things with that, like uh, Romanian cinema. But now you're seeing from uh, Russia and Poland and uh, Czechoslovakia and other former East Bloc countries more exciting, accessible uh, filmmaking in story forms that regular audience members might be open to. And Hungary, I've always thought of as still sort of in the zone of weirdness and discomfort and avant-garde as exemplified by the filmmaker Bela Tarr, who's sort of the master of the year-long locked off or traveling shot. Uh, so it's uh, interesting to see something uh, more uh, accessible and narrative coming from them. We've had good luck with Hungary over the years at this festival, and I don't know if it's just you know luck of the draw or I'm good at picking, but we saw a terrific sort of uh, Gnostic subway thriller several years ago called Control that was made in Hungary, set in the Budapest subways, 
there was uh, uh, exactly what you talk about, the fatalistic despair shot through with uh, uncomfortable uh, humor. There was a poisoning comedy called Huckle that was really strong that came out from Hungary. I know I've seen that DVD actually on shelves somewhere yes, in Chicago. Uh, that director is, is Georgi Palfi, I think, and is very interesting and sometimes extremely disturbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm I'm not pulling the name of his subsequent film, which is uh, a film that I found uh, brilliant and wished I had never seen. <laughs> <laughs> Much like Sheila with uh, Chinatown. So yeah, the uh, the Eastern Europeans, I find, are generally a good bet. I have so far had nothing but bad luck with the former Yugoslavia, so I don't know if they're still uh, too early on that cycle uh, that you talk about. And the Romanian realist films, some of them are uh, have, have a qualities of interest to them and some of them are just are they're still in that uh uh trends in tractor based despair uh genre that the eastern europeans for excellent reasons uh got into uh, a great deal in the 90s i found actually a lot of really strong films from the former yugoslavia even when the conflict was on but they're all about the conflict Mm -hmm. and so naturally are extremely tough and uh are focused on that in various ways. And so if you do not want to uh, face the horrors of that war, uh, you're still not going to find much in that cinema. No. Now, uh, speaking of genre and deconstruction, you saw a film that I also saw at TIFF and very much enjoyed. So perhaps you could share your uh, observations on uh, Room 237, which is a uh, Film about film in a way that I have not seen before. <laughs> oh man, is it? Um, it's a. Did you see the movie Los Angeles Plays Itself ever? I did. Yes. Okay. It, it, this reminded me very much of that film in that the film is not your standard documentary in which you see someone explaining what the movie is going to be about, and then you go and you hear their voiceover and you right. sort of see for, the film. For, they for shot the benefit of viewers, we should explain that L.A. Plays Itself is a sort of a essay film made up of clips from all sorts of Hollywood films about Los Angeles and is only viewable at cinematheques and art galleries because the filmmaker did not clear the rights to all of those clips and does not want to have a fair fair dealing fight with Hollywood over them. So it's uh, an interesting uh, sort of film comment piece with narrated discussion, which you're now seeing more of on uh, YouTube, but this was sort of a massive pioneer of the forum, and it's also very long. It's about three hours or something like that. Yeah, it took me about five years to get to see it. Uh, it came to Chicago once, and I, uh, for the I think for the Film Fest, and I missed it, and then he brought it back around to Chicago on a different lecture tour, and it's well worth seeing if you get a chance. But this is that same sort of thing. It is about, uh, I think, four or five, I think five uh, paranerds who have bizarre theories about The Shining, and they speak in voiceover while clips from The Shining or clips from other Kubrick films or clips from other films entirely play to illustrate or subtly uh, mock their point, which uh, it, it was it was a beautiful piece of just being put together in terms, you know, of, of the construction from that sort of uh, footage. And then also it is by showing all of these guys sort of side by side, never overtly commenting. I think you hear the director's voice a couple of times in, in interview segments, but it, it's almost never that you hear any part of the directorial presence. It's all done in how he chooses to illustrate the various insane things being said by the, the Shining critics. And it, it winds up, like I say in my, in my review on my live journal, it, it, it winds up illustrating not just by association and not just film criticism and not just The Shining, but also it's a, a real wet fish in the face to postmodernism because, you know, regardless of its aesthetic quality, which, you know, I'm certainly a big fan of, as a way of understanding anything, it, it really kind of leads you right into Room 237 and in, into the crazy people. And I, I feel like I, I don't even want to spoiler the craziness because so much of the fun of this film is watching the people just destroy themselves, or listening, rather, to the people just destroy themselves as they explain earnestly their ridiculous theory about The Shining, whatever it happens to be. And and the thing is, is that not all of their theories are ridiculous. Some of them are just... Uh interpreting things that are clearly there in the film and just taking them to an absurd degree or treating themselves as if they found something incredibly secret in the fact that the film 
repeatedly references, for example, the Indian Wars. Well, that's in there. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite obviously in there and in there on purpose, but then there are other things that are uh, not there, like one woman who finds a lot of meaning in the fact that the interrelationship of the rooms are subtly cheated the way that every film cheats the <laughs> physical space and set that they're in for uh, the maximum composition. Yeah, the, the blueprint uh, uh, that she did of the of the Hotel Overlook in the film, they show that uh, it's one of the few things that is not actually uh, cinema that's, I suppose, off of her website or whatever. And it's it's a thing of wonder and beauty. It's like people being angry that there's no bathrooms on the uh, Enterprise Bridge. Although I would I would have to dispute your contention that this is a, a wet fish to postmodernism. I think this is probably a, a huge expression of postmodernism because it is all about the futility of attempting to achieve a single authoritative viewpoint on something that is elusive and indefinable. It's just uh, not uh, with the horrible syntax that written postmodern has. Postmodernism is, is one of the best ways to, to uh, demonstrate the invalidity of postmodernism, certainly, and this does a great job of that. Uh, I, th I think that the, uh, the method by which one can assert that no true truth can be ascertained is quite often elited in practice to everything is equally true which this documentary, I think, demonstrably indicates is not the case. Now, another film that you really enjoyed is one that I will have to keep an eye out for, which is an Icelandic uh, Goodfellas. It's, it's uh, called Black's Game. It is one of the, uh, I guess it's a big box office winner in Iceland. They, they love it there. And it is a, uh, it, it's just what it says on the, on, the, on the tin there. It is an Icelandic Goodfellas. The... Uh, it is sort of based on a real story, the real story of how the drug trade came to Iceland. Uh, it, one of the characters in the film is the first person ever arrested in Iceland on drug trafficking charges. And it, he's sort of the, uh, the Johnny Torrio figure, the, the, the guy who's, who's in the background before the current mob boss takes over and before our protagonist sort of rises through the ranks uh, in proper Goodfellas fashion. It's, uh, it, it's just, it, like I say, it, everything about it clicks together. The acting, the directing, the writing, it, it just really strong. Again, it is uh, what I like to see, which is a, uh, a really good example of making a genre film. I don't think that enough people make good genre films. People seem to believe that if something is a, is a genre, you can, that gives you an excuse to be lazy and to not understand what you're doing. And so when a film takes something like the gangster genre that has basically been unchanged since the first Scarface in 1933 or whatever it was, and does, you know, something not even new with it, but just something really right with it, that is in and of itself worth doing. And the fact that, you know, it can be mapped to Goodfellas or it can be mapped to the Korean uh, film A Dirty Carnival or it can be mapped, like I say, to the original Scarface or to a lesser extent to the uh, De Palma Scarface. I think that those are good things. That's why genre works when it works, is because it's part of this continuity. And again, the thing that makes that interesting to me is seeing an individual director tell that same story again in his own metier, with his own sort of personal mythology and his own personal uh, concerns at the forefront. And that is so much stronger to me than if this, than if this guy had taken... You know, the same characters and done something else with them. And just before we depart the cinema hut, because I think the ushers are uh, staring at us and hoping to clean up and go home, uh, you did see a couple of horror films that played uh, Tiff's Midnight Madness program, but I did not manage to fit in. And uh, one of them you rate very, very highly indeed, and that's Don Coscarelli's John Dies at the End. Yes. Uh, John Dies at the End is based on the internet novel or internet fiction that became a novel, whatever, however you want to define it. And it, it, like I said, after I saw it, it occurs to me that Don Coscarelli has never made a bad film. I mean, he's made films that don't work as well as some of the others, but he's really good. He's, uh, he's got all of sort of Sam Raimi's gifts for, uh, for, for inventive camera work and for sort of, uh, the, the farcical element of Grand Guignol while also being able to ground films in sort of a human concern in a way that, uh, sometimes escapes Raimi. And this is that again, and it's really a super great, uh, paranoid, quasi Lovecraftian drug comedy. It's sort of a 21st century uh, version of uh, of, a, of a good haunting movie, I guess. It, the, the the sort of summary that I give it is William S. Burroughs' "Dude, Where's My Car," 
which I think is, you know, it'll get you down the road to knowing what you're going to see when you see it. You also caught the ABCs of Death, which is uh, an anthology film consisting entirely of uh, kill scenes. And uh, does this suffer from the uh, usual flaw of anthology films, which is that they are anthology films? It, it very much does, and specifically this film suffers from the flaw of having a, a, a fair, a fairly large number of uh, mediocre efforts and stinkers. And the sad thing is that the absolute best film in the batch is uh, Nacho Vigalando's film for A, and the absolute worst film is a Japanese director whose name thankfully escapes me, uh, who did Z. And from A to Z, it is not quite a straight slide down. W, one of the American directors and one of the meta films in the batch, is actually somewhat clever and, and fun. But the uh, but but the broader um, uh, the, the broader arc of the of the of the anthology is not uh, is not successful. I don't think. I mean, certainly individual bits of it are really good, and I'm sure that as they start creeping out on YouTube, uh, people can you know can see those. And as a as, as sort of a you know a tales from the crypt type experience, it is what it is, right? Like you say, it is an anthology film. It's just that I had hoped that the uh, average would be slightly higher than a C, which it wasn't. And you also enjoyed a film which I have seen on Blu-ray and know as Wu Sha and is being introduced to the North American market as Dragon. It's a Peter Chan film, and uh, perhaps you could share the fun twist on the martial arts movie that this consists of? Well, the fun twist on the martial arts movie that this is is that it is a noir. It is a film of a person who does something that brings them into a shadow world and pays the price for that action. And this being uh, sort of neo-Confucian, it doesn't matter whether the action is good or evil, it just means that they have acted outside their sphere and trouble will now pursue them, and in, again, in proper noir style, something from their past comes back to haunt them. We have a terrific, implacable detective on our hero's uh, tail. Uh, it, it's, it's very, it's, again, it's structurally very much like, you know, high period 1950s uh, crime film noir, but it's also a wuxia martial arts movie, and the bit Fairly early in the in the uh, in the film, right around the first act turn, where the detective examines the fight, the, the the place where the big fight scene, the big first big fight scene took place, and reconstructs it forensically using his knowledge of key and uh, and uh, and martial arts is it, it it's just bravura and uh, it's uh, nothing I think in the film could possibly have lived up to that sudden realization that we are in a, a, a wonderfully magical universe where Wuxia works so predictably that a detective can, can solve it. It was a very Mutant City Blues uh, type moment for me. That there was Somewhere there was some sort of terrific Shaolin Quaid diagram that he was working from. Well, the thing that for me really picks up the last act is that uh, the legendary Shaw Brothers star of the 70s, Jimmy Wang Yu, returns mm -hmm. after a long, long absence, uh, perhaps while he was out taking care of his triad activities and uh, delivers a great performance as a heavy with pathos. Yes, uh, yes. And so that's very much uh, worth seeing, even if uh, in typical Hong Kong movie style, it's less interested in connecting the thematic dots between its set pieces as in moving from here's another thing now. And so as I mentioned before, that is actually already available as an import Blu-ray at your favorite Chinatown Blu-ray store. And... Uh, as you will, uh, film fans will all already know, uh, the Asian region coding for Blu-ray is the same as the North American one, so you can buy it and put it in your player without uh, any jiggery-pokery. And on that note, I think we have uh, whetted everyone's appetite for more films to come, and so we will close up the doors of the cinema. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Timothy Daly asks Ken and Robin, what are the differences in play between Skullduggery and Drama System? So uh, these are both game engines of my design, and for those who have not been rapidly following every syllable of every podcast so far, I'll briefly recap. Uh, Drama System is my new game that focuses on dramatic interaction and creates a simple token economy to 
create the structure of dramatic scenes that you see in any form of fiction and are most easily and accessibly seen in TV serialized drama. Skullduggery is the rules engine that uh, we have retrospectively named Skullduggery. It originally started out as the dedicated rules engine for the Dying Earth role-playing game. I, a couple of years ago, fine-tuned it and streamlined it in a generic game called uh, Skullduggery, surprisingly enough, and have uh, since then uh, gone back to the Jack Vance well and installed it as the new streamlined way to play the Dying Earth role-playing game as found in a book called the Dying Earth Revivification Folio. And basically the difference between these games, I think, points out the flaw in the whole systems don't matter argument, which maybe we can get to later to kind of broaden this discussion out. But you will have a very different experience playing the same situation in a drama system game than you would in a Skullduggery game. And that difference is that in drama system, it's about uh, creating and exploring and deepening the characters, particularly over a long period of time. And uh, Skullduggery is a more picaresque storytelling mode where you are purposely, ironically detaching yourself from your characters who are all scoundrels to one degree or another. And uh, although unlike Fiasco, which guarantees that everything is going to spiral into disaster, it is not certain that your characters will face an ironic comeuppance at the end, but it is entirely possible that that will happen. And because you are playing characters who you know to be kind of uh, awful, it is more about the tactics of screwing over the other uh, characters and often the other player characters and about being screwed over in turn and about trickery. Whereas in drama system, your uh to the extent that you're tactical at all, you're using emotional tactics to seek emotional rewards for one another. So if you were to uh, play a, a drama system game about a whole bunch of people in a space station investigating this strange object that you've all been taken to uh, this planet to survey, you would follow the relationships between the people over time as they're impacted by their life on this isolated space station. In Skullduggery, they would all have a reason to betray each other in order to get the exclusive information concerning this space monolith, and it would be over fairly quickly. It would be a, a one-shot game. Now, you can do extended Skullduggery play as you do in the Dying Earth Revivification Folio, but in this case, your sort of picaresque scoundrels are moving from one situation to the next, from one session to the next, and it's essentially a series of one-shot games featuring the same characters in which uh, you may or may not face a horrible comeuppance that forces you to get a new character for the next one, but it's very much like the structure of Jack Vance's Kugel the Clever stories, where Kugel moves from one situation to the next, they're self-contained, and he uh, gets tricked or swindled as often as he swindles or tricks. And so really it's about your extent of your emotional connection to the characters, and that makes a huge difference in play. And so playing the same basic premise as laid out for Skullduggery would be a very, very different play experience than one that was uh, set up using the drama system rules. And Ken, you've played uh, both games, and I think you can probably uh, contrast them further. Yeah, I think that the the big difference that you indicated that in the one in Skullduggery you're ironically distanced from your character, and in Drama System you're encouraged to find their emotional center, and both of those are, are things that the game system, as you as you indicate, definitely uh, urges you. I, I don't want to say forces you, but it certainly urges you to do in order to get the most out of play. Uh, again, even if you're thinking purely in a gamist sense, uh, the the good play in Skullduggery is to screw someone over, and the good play in Drama System is to make a wrenching emotional decision. And those are th those are just the you know the sort of the um, uh, the the fallback. I, I hit it with my axe uh, type uh, moves in those systems. And I think that the experience of doing those over and over again in the one case, I, I think it produces a more I don't want to say a story, but certainly a more setting aware story. And in the second one, because you're always looking around for a sort of chrome to play off of, and in the in the second one, it it very much drives you internally that you're you're not so much thinking about you know am I in the hills of southern Palestine in the 10th century BC? You're thinking 
how do I convince this woman that I still love her? Which is the kind of question you could be asking regardless of where you are, space station or southern Palestine or, or wherever it happens to be. And you can see these in the reward system, where in drama system you are rewarded for uh, giving in half the time in an emotional scene and sticking to your guns the other half of the time. In uh, Skullduggery, you're rewarded for weaving pre-existing snippets of witty dialogue into the scene. And so in both cases, you are rewarded for entertaining the rest of the group. In the drama system example, you are rewarded for uh, creating a dynamic that matches the way that interpersonal relationships work, both in fiction and in reality, whereas in Skullduggery, you're rewarded for uh, being funny and possibly even sneaky enough to twist the plot around to a point where your line of dialogue is a perfect epper coup. And so I think this goes to something that other people often say on the internet. There is a long-standing argument in the world of role-playing games, does system matter? And as someone who designs systems and designs them to do different things and create different effects and reward different activities, I can't help but think that system does matter. That if you uh, run a skullduggery game in the space station setting, you're going to get a radically different result, as I indicated earlier, than if you're running in a drama system. So, Ken, what do you think is behind that uh, statement uh, that is uh, people hold to quite a bit, feel a big emotional investment in, and I think has to be surely be wrong on its face? I, th I think that um, part of what is behind it is that for the vast majority of play as it has been done, probably up until 2000, up until Sorcerer and the sort of beginning of the, uh, of, of the, of the directly, uh, micro-targeted role-playing experience, system didn't matter that much. Even in a game like Vampire, where you were playing, uh, you, you were sort of encouraged to brood and be angsty and, and throw capes over your eyes and, and wail about the glories of the night. The system really didn't drive that. All of that was driven by better or worse flavor text and uh, notes about what the theme and the mood of the game should be. The system had a few mechanical Phillips humanity for vampires, things like that, but there was no immediate sort of experience that the system created that, that drove that uh, play automatically. You could ignore... Uh, virtually everything except, I guess, frenzying and humanity points in Vampire and still be playing the same Vampire game as you were if you played GURPS Vampire the Masquerade or just played it with uh, the Shadowrun rules because they were basically all point uh, pools or whatever you did. And certainly in the experience of dungeon crawling, which is still the majority of gameplay, 95% of systems don't matter because as long as you have internalized the specific mechanics by which you swing your sword and behead an orc, then that is the thing that you're experiencing, is the, is the internalization of mechanics, the comfort with being able to make tactical choices. Now, some systems are more or less robust, give more or fewer combat options, feel longer in a fight. I, I think a hero fight, a hero system fight, feels longer to me than a GURPS fight, and I know both systems probably by now roughly uh, equivalently. Uh, neither of them feel as, uh, both of them feel longer than a D&D 4th edition fight, uh, which to me felt much more like a D&D first edition fight. And so obviously you can build sort of experiences into how, simply how mechanically long does the fight go on. The Call of Cthulhu fight seldom lasts, you know, 10, 15 minutes at the table. If it does, it was a really big thing that happened. In D&D, &D, the fight can deliberately last an hour, and in Hero, it can last the whole game. You know, we're going to stop a jewel robbery, everyone, so make sure you can stay late. And I think also that I think it's a gambit in a discussion in a forum or in a mailing list or whatever that is basically another way of saying your argument about what system is best bores me. I do not want to talk about this, but it's being framed in a way that is pretty easily disputed by reference to as you say, that the different length of a combat in Call of Cthulhu versus Hero, or the different behaviors that a game with a humanity mechanic encourages over a game where you have the nine alignments or, or whatever it is. And that, that's something certainly that I'm sympathetic with, and I guess you have to sort of read between the lines to see uh, whether it's just an expression of, I am tired of your dumb argument about ac action ranks, as opposed to a 
real argument that is being held to and, and supported with evidence. And again, if, if someone has never played a game in which system drove the game differently than the games that they have played, they may not have the experience of system mattering one way or the other. Or if they've, uh, if their uh, GM has been running Traveler for 15 years, and so every game he runs feels like the game run by that same GM. If you haven't gone to enough conventions to see other GMs run other games, get a sort of sense that, you know, I think to another extent, that is that is a factor, that a GM's games are going to feel similar to each other if they're the same GM. So if you've played Shadowrun under the same GM you played D&D with, and then that same GM runs um, uh, Trail of Cthulhu, that experience is going to feel probably a lot more similar to the given player. The, the, the GM habits might sort of provide a continuity of experience in a way, and, and, a, and a sense of commonality. Right, and the more the you play with a GM who also has, you know, their set of ticks and tricks, and also if you play with a GM who disguises the rule structures from you, you're not going to necessarily see what's happening in the game because the rules are making them happen, and what's happening in the game because the GM is nudging you in that direction. Yeah, I, I think uh, also as game designers, I think you and I have a different experience when we're playing a game than someone who's not a game designer, and so things that are you know, I don't say brilliantly, but blatantly clear to us uh, if we're playing any game and we say, oh, what a great mechanic, what a clever little tweak that was. I'm going to file it away and steal it. 90% of people, 95% of people are not playing that way. They're, you know, trying to maybe, if they're thinking mechanically at all, it's about min-maxing their character, not about separating that mechanic out and understanding exactly what moment of play or what kind of decision it drove. Right, just like when a cinematographer watches a film, he's thinking about what lenses have been used, whereas everybody else is just taking the emotional experiences they're supposed to take from it. Right. Well, I think having strayed far from the original question, uh, I think we can say that we've been asked a question and answered it and answered another question besides. Always good to get the extra questions answered just in case. The rustling of graph paper should inform you. We have once again entered the Cartography Hut, a hut erected at the behest of our beloved sponsors, Pro Fantasy Software. And in this particular case, we are looking at uh, a map of Chicago, which means that I will immediately ask Robin, Robin, isn't that an awesome map of Chicago? That is an awesome map of Chicago because it is covered with little red dots. Uh, which lead me to assume that there's some sort of information associated with those red dots. And the thing that jumps out at me is that the person who has created this particular map uh, sees an important distinction, as noted on the uh, index, between gangs with clubhouses and gangs without clubhouses. So perhaps you could elucidate for me why that is an important distinction, uh, perhaps the most important distinction in a map of Chicago gangland circa what? 1926. Uh, 26. Yeah, the, uh, the, the, the map that we're talking about is called Chicago's Gangland. It was made by a uh, doctoral student at the University of Chicago in, I believe, sociology named Frederick Thrasher. And he wrote his uh, thesis up as a book, which I believe was called something brilliant like Chicago's Gangland, or it, it, which discussed... 1,313 separate gangs in Chicago in the 20s. And I used this map uh, when I was working on the Deadlands Noir Chicago Companion uh, because it is just phenomenal. It's a, it's a large map of Chicago uh, overlain with the ethnic uh, composition of the neighborhood and then uh, specific information, sociological information about the gang, sometimes the gang's name, sometimes the rivalry. It's sort of like notes for a, for a campaign more than it is an actually uh, functioning map in a lot of ways. The difference between a gang with a club room and a gang without a club room, I suspect, is the degree to which the gang is integrated into the society of the city. In, in Chicago especially, but certainly in, in other big cities in America in the, in the interwar period, uh, gangs grew out of 
the local social experience in a way that they do less so now. Uh, the uh, the Italian gangs were uh, the people who would go around and make sure that the uh, uh, generalized prejudice of the outside world did not get into the local neighborhood. And the ones with club rooms, I suspect, are the gangs that have enough of a accepted presence, even if it's a sort of under-the-hand, don't-talk-about-it accepted presence in society, that they are performing that kind of social use, that they are sort of a an, a, a signal, at the very least, to the guys in the next block over, that we are not going to roll over and take it if you send your thugs into our, uh, into our hood. So it suggests a level of sort of institutional integration with the culture in the neighborhood, the way that, even to this day, the Yakuza in Japan have offices that you can look up and you can uh, go to their office and you need to talk to a guy in the Yakuza. It's just the same as uh, consulting a chiropodist or a massage uh, therapist. You know where to find the Yakuza because they keep office hours. Yeah, and I and, and in uh, and in Chicago in the twenties, if you were if you were connected, if you're part of the neighborhood, you knew where the the gang headquarters was just because you knew it. I mean, the same reason that you knew where the bar was or the church or whatever other local establishments. And it would not say, because this is America, not crazy Japan, it would not say, welcome to the you know headquarters of the, the Chicago outfit. How can we help you today? It would say, you know, the, 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 the Four Deuces Social Club or something like that. Uh, the Unione Siciliana, which was a gang and a uh, benevolent association, similar to the uh, Tongs in Chicago, the Anlong and Hop Singh, uh, hip saying tongs also had that sort of, I mean, they were the, they're the ones that are sort of the next level up where they're simultaneously neighborhood benevolent associations and funeral associations. The big, uh, black, uh, uh gangster in, uh, Chicago, uh, I think it's Daniel McKee Jackson is, uh, was a funeral director and you could go to his funeral home and, and he would sort of set everything up for you if, if you had a problem, but selling, uh, funeral insurance to, generally poor or working class uh, uh, citizens is another sort of social faculty that has to be provided in this uh, age before there is a, a, a cradle-to-grave welfare state uh, that uh, that has to be provided by somebody. And usually in an immigrant neighborhood or a uh, ethnically uh, isolated neighborhood like the ghetto in Chicago, it's provided by businessmen who naturally take on other uh, other jobs, uh, generally at least some level of protection from other gangs, and then it becomes an extortion racket and everything else that uh, we know of and love in Chicago gangland activity. So uh, just like illicit drugs, you have to legalize welfare or the gangsters wind up running it. <laughs> right. <laughs> wind up running it, yes. Yeah, legalize it um, so that you can... I guess not tax it, but anyway, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the, the notion, and again, the, the question that these, that these gangs would, would have, and some of them are, 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 um, are, are very, very local, you know, one block, and some of them are whole citywide gangs, uh, is to what extent are they sanctioned by the community? And to what extent is the community simply the body in which they are parasitic? And that's not a question that you can answer, I think, with a bright line. Even a gangster like Al Capone or a gangster like Bug Moran would engage in social activity, if only as a means of camouflage and attempting to buy some level of acceptance. But even now, I mean, you can read people's reminiscence of Al Capone, and it's like, well, I hear he killed a lot of people, but he gave me 20 bucks when I was delivering papers at uh, 4 in the morning in January, and I could go home, and I didn't have to go and freeze myself to death because Al Capone was a nice guy to me. Well, in a way, gangsterism is a survival of feudalism within a otherwise democratic society. And for the people who do not benefit from the uh, supposed freedom of the democratic society need someone to go to to solve problems. And in that case, you go to someone who is uh, just as likely to give you 20 bucks as to cut your head off. Right. And uh, that's a lot like, you know, the old uh, lords and kings of old. And uh, these are certainly analogies that, for example, the uh, Italian gangsters would have been quite aware of. They knew that that's what was going on. So the, the other, one thing that strikes me about the huge number of different gangs is that uh, I've always thought of Chicago gangland in this period as being more unified than this map suggests. And perhaps that's just a function of gangster 
films and crime novels that have to simplify things by saying, you know, there's two gangs and they're up against each other. So to what extent were all of these gangs sort of in a hierarchy all kicking up to one guy ahead and how much were they just sort of local phenomenon? Well, in Chicago in the 20s, the key question for gang organization is from whom do you buy your liquor? And that is the equivalent of a feudal kickback. Uh, certainly the outfit and uh, the Northside gang run by Moran and other gangs like uh, Daniel McKee Jackson's gang in uh, Bronzeville practiced standard uh, the guys on one block collect protection and then they kick it up to their captain and the captain kicks it up to the capo and the capo kicks it up to the boss. Uh, that sort of feudal uh, structure we're all familiar with from mafia films. But a lot of it was just, if you buy your liquor from Capone, you're in Capone's outfit. And if you buy your liquor from Moran, you're in Moran's outfit. And the basic structure of Chicago gangland was that these little tiny gangs would have to make a choice as to which uh, major gangster they patronized. Not even so much would they pay a cut, although obviously plenty of them also paid cuts of various other activities because especially after the, the sort of the gangland summit in 1924 when Capone and, at the time, Dino Banyan attempted to negotiate a truce in the gang war uh, and, and carve the city up into colonial territories, uh, they, they also established who got to run the cocaine trade and who got to run the heroin trade and who could have girls in uh, what uh, neck of town. And they, they divided the city at Madison Street, and everything south of Madison Street was supposed to go to Capone, and everything north of Madison Street was supposed to go to... Uh, the Northside gang, but even then they had to make deals with separate uh, smaller gangs. Uh, in Little Sicily, for example, uh, and Little Italy, each had their own, uh, as, it, as it turned out, sort of competing gangs. The uh, Little Italy gang was very, very, uh, uh, very, very insular, and it was a huge profit center because, A, all the people paid their protection on time, and there wasn't a lot of problem with it, and also all of them cooked uh, alcohol in their house. It was, it, was, it was said that in Little Italy, you know, regardless of, uh, of what else was going on, it was always cloudy because there was these clouds of alcohol smoke coming out of the stills. And so it was a, a huge profit center. So the Little Italy gang, which was at that time run by the, the Gennas, uh, could stay somewhat independent of Capone and try and play both sides against the middle. And meanwhile, the Little Sicily gang... Uh, sort of coveted that and thought that they were being, you know, prevented from having their fair share of Little Italy. So those sub-gangs were always ready to step to each other in a way that uh, even assuming that Capone, you know, was serious when he was uh, carving the city up, he certainly didn't want the fight to break out in a way that he didn't control, but it quite often did. So at times there's an effort to make it the hierarchical structure that people at the top would benefit from. But just as often, if not more often, the relationship is really not so much a feudal hierarchy as wholesaler and retailer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's it, it's a, it's a very American gang structure uh, in a lot of ways because it's about you know Capone is providing a product, he's providing a service. It's not just give me money or I will kill you. Although there is obviously some aspect of of, of some of that in his activities, but the huge majority of his money is coming from selling alcohol which, because you know, it had been made illegal by a, a series of ridiculous moves that we've talked about in an earlier podcast, uh, the only place to get alcohol was from a gangster. And once again, they were making so much money on bootlegging that it almost didn't matter that they were also fixing horse races or running houses of prostitution or whatever else. Well, you got to keep busy. Yeah, well, obviously, someone's going to have to fix horse races. They, they don't fix themselves, that's for sure. <laughs> So what uh, most surprised you about this map as you did your research? Well, well, part of it is because I know Chicago fairly well now, having lived here for over 20 years. And so when you look at something like Uptown, which is labeled the Bright Lights area, it's uh, and the Hotel Coast, and now it is, it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a great neighborhood, but it is by no means the Bright Lights area, and it is no, not at all the Hotel Coast. Or you look at a, a stretch... Um, uh, that's uh, rooming houses in an area that you know of as uh, yuppie bars and uh, places that uh, the Trixies go to get uh, picked up by Cubs fans. It, it, it's just a delightful sort of a picture of the way that the city has changed. 
and in in a lot of ways, obviously, the fact that you have um, uh, these sort of very strongly demarcated ethnic ghettos is something that you you don't want. But Chicago still retains a, a very strong sense of, uh, of of ethnicity in a lot of its neighborhoods, uh, less so in Hyde Park where I live. But that's because there's this sort of bizarre island effect created by the university. But the uh, but there's a there's a, a somewhere on this map there is a gang that is called the Shielders. And the Shielders were a Polish gang whose job, or, or an Irish gang in this case, uh, who, who were in uh, Canaryville, which is uh, an Irish working class district. Uh, and they, they were the Shielders because it was their job to keep the blacks out of Canaryville. And just seeing that written out on, on, on the map is, is, you know, it does more sort of to sort of bring home what the social realities on the ground of, of segregation are than any number of high-minded articles in the University of, uh, in the Chicago Encyclopedia or any other sort of uh, acceptable source. Well, if we hadn't tarried in the uh, cartography out too long, I would ask you how all of these gangs integrated with Chicago politics. So I guess we'll have to put a pin on that and uh, turn that into a future history hut. Okay, fair enough. And now we once again visit one of the uh, favorite segments here on Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, and that is Ken's Time Machine, in which the benevolent, if mysterious forces of Time Incorporated send Ken back in time to fix a knot or wriggle in the time stream in an attempt to engineer a more salubrious present. And in this case, they have assigned Ken the task of preventing the burning of the library of Alexandria. And from what I understand of the subject, one of the first challenges you will face is in determining which of the many burnings of libraries in Alexandria is the one that needs to be prevented. Yeah, the trouble, the other trouble, of course, is you prevent one, uh, the first burning of the Library of Alexandria that uh, seems to have happened was when Julius Caesar was being ambushed by uh, Ptolemy Ephialtes, I think, in uh, the harbor of Alexandria, and his ships were attacked by the Egyptian navy. And he was forced to uh, fight back and uh, strike against the Egyptian navy in such wise that he set their ships on fire. The burning ships set fire to the docklands. The docklands fire r- raced inland and probably burned out, if not all of, a good chunk of the Library of Alexandria. Even if you stop that, which is not the super hardest thing in the world, you have you know three or four more burnings that you have to avoid uh, before the whole thing becomes safe. And at some level, I, I suspect that if Time Incorporated really wants to save the Library of Alexandria, they'll do better to send me back with a, an OCR camera and a truck than any uh, attempt at alcohol-fueled de-arsonization. Well, of course, Time Incorporated, is, although interested in those documents, is not so much looking for access to them as to prevent the discontinuity of learning mm-hmm. uh, caused by the burning of the library. So I'm afraid that your OCR and truck solution, though elegant, uh, has been rejected in favor of uh, a more boots-on-the-ground approach. Yes. Well, boots-on-the-ground pretty much have to begin, then, with uh, sabotaging Ptolemy Ephialtes' attempt at sabotaging Julius Caesar. And given that Julius Caesar is the greatest general in the in Roman history, uh, possibly in all classical history, if one is not as big an Alexander the Great fan as myself, but certainly top two, uh, Simply telling Julius Caesar what's about to happen is enough to stop that. But if Caesar is ready for the ambush without having to uh, engage uh, with fire ships, then he will be able to pretty much sink the entire Egyptian fleet without worrying about that kind of action, and the library will remain safe for the time being. Uh, That will incidentally also save the Library of Pergamon, which Mark Antony confiscated to give to Cleopatra to replace the burned Library of Alexandria, and the Library of Pergamon, which is what got burned 200 years later when uh, Zenobia of Palmyra takes over Alexandria, and the Emperor Aurelian has to sack the city uh, to get her out of it. And that is a much tougher job of work, given that that is a large military campaign between two very competent opponents, and you are in a period, uh, moreover, in which the later Roman Empire, you don't have the sort of, um, 
you don't have the sort of options that you do with with someone like Caesar. The the the, the politics are, are much different. We are beginning to get sort of the, the beginnings of nascent nationhood in the East that are beginning to separate those uh, the, those countries out of the Roman sphere, and it's beginning to be more of a totalizing war of societies and less of a squabble over who gets to wear the laurel wreath. Uh, a lot of that is still going on, but certainly in Egypt and in Syria, you're beginning to see, a, I suspect, a more national uh, struggle, and the causes of that are probably beyond my reach as a uh, as a time guy. I suspect that if you are interested in the continuity of learning, it may be uh, the solution to uh, get Queen Zenobia to. Uh, I'm not. I'm not really sure who she would necessarily have to marry or otherwise involve herself with in order to um, in order to sort of wire her into the Eastern Roman Empire. She certainly presented herself as the protectress of the Eastern Empire against the Persians, and I suspect somewhere in there there is a royal marriage that can be made to happen that would give her uh, skin in the game and cause her not to resist uh, Aurelian. The trouble, of course, being that Aurelian is really what Rome needs in that 3rd century period when Rome almost fell 200 years early before... uh, Aurelian and then Diocletian were able to sort of uh, straighten things out. I don't know if that is a little too much inside baseball uh, for uh, my superiors at Time Incorporated, much less uh, the people who read my carefully redacted reports. So uh, when you uh, met Caesar, what uh, what struck you about him as a, when you were... I mean, first of all, obviously you had to overcome his suspicion against uh, red-faced... Uh, wizards who uh, speak curiously, I think possibly because the Time Incorporated once gave the time machine to Justin Achille for a while, but... Uh, <laughs> That's, that, 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 was, um, uh, that was a great mission, but it certainly... Um, I, I bear some, some, uh, some blame for that, given the number of things that I, that I successfully solved by getting people drunk. They figured, you know, if, if, half, a, if, if, if half a loaf is good, <laughs> the whole bakery must be awesome. Uh, but, of course, you, you smoothed that out with Caesar, and, and what struck you about him when you were talking to him? Well, Caesar is one of those people that you run across, especially in ancient history, who is simultaneously strikingly modern in their in their mentality. The, the, uh, the degree to which Caesar felt himself constrained by the elements of Roman society that you or I might find weird or off-putting. And, and again, Roman society is, is a ritualistic... Uh, honor-bound society that makes Tokugawa Japan look like 60s California. But Caesar, seeing himself as a figure of destiny, sort of surfed those beliefs more than being held down by them. And whether that was just because... uh, I don't think it's because he had a a modern mind, but I think that the modern mind is more used to atomistic uh, sociopaths operating on individual power bases as opposed to doing something solely for the gens or the state. Uh, in the in the way that uh, your your average Roman would behave, so Caesar has that sort of immediate ability to look at at a situation purely as a tactical problem, and I I think that it's it's a lot of that is behind his uh, I mean obviously it's it's behind his huge military success, but I think a lot of it is also behind his political success that he's able to sort of visualize the problems with Rome that are caused by the traditions of Rome and is working his own way towards the solution that eventually his adopted heir, Augustus, will of providing Rome with a a monarchy without providing Rome with a monarchy. So he is, in effect, a minimaxer of Roman society. Yeah, I think very much so. He's he's willing to sort of claim the the, uh, usufructs of being a a priest of of Jupiter when he was one, Pontifex. He's willing to claim descent from uh, the, the goddess Venus, if that will help. But he's just as willing to stab um, uh, old family retainers uh, if that is what is going to uh, move him ahead a square. He is in you know in every like virtually every great historical dictator, a borderline psychopath, which can be troublesome. But it certainly makes it easy to deal with them by simply pointing out an immediate path of least resistance, and certainly warning him of the uh, ill uh, feeling of uh, Ptolemy. Uh, is it, it, it's the sort of thing that Caesar would would have been suspicious of him already. And when I talked to him, 
he certainly accepted the the theory that he was going to be stabbed in the back and betrayed uh with you know with no with, with no particular skepticism once he got over the fact of um uh, red-faced funny talking strangers accosting him so what uh, souvenir did you bring back with you from that mission oh from that mission i brought back ptolemy's biography of alexander uh from the library the uh his his uh general ptolemy who served with him wrote the life of alexander that all of the other uh, Alexandrian historians worked from before it was lost, uh, possibly in one of the many burnings of uh, Alexandria. But certainly, it is the thing, and I apologize to fans of Sophocles or um, uh, the guys who want um, uh, the 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 other half of, uh, of of Euripides' tragedies. I think he won something like uh, twenty five awards for tragedy in a row, and we have seven. So it's it's like you have a randomly chosen quarter of the first folio for Euripides, and I feel sorry for those guys, but I really really want uh, the the rest of the story on Alexander the Great, and so that's what I'm bringing back from the library. Well, then I guess we better hope that there's never a burning of the Great Library of Chicago height annex. I, yes, uh, I I certainly I, I certainly have taken every step that I can to prevent that from happening, and I'm certainly not going to let the Ptolemies anywhere near it. Always a good policy. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower. Drive Through RPG. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Find our website where you can leave plaints and panegyrics at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.